Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. This is a Vault Studios production. I'm Reed Redmond. I'm Will Johnson. The show contains graphic material and is meant for mature audiences. This week on True Crime Chronicles. I can't help but to think that David fits a profile of a group of people that many people are afraid of, and that is he's male and on the autism spectrum. If the traditional person seeing David in the community sees some of those behaviors, they may look at those behaviors as being strange. But at the end of the day, none of those behaviors are criminal. That's just who he is. He just wanted to be a normal teen, going to his classes, absorbing knowledge, and, you know, being a success at life. In 2017, an anonymous email was sent to a high school special education teacher in Gwinnett County, Georgia. There is a, a threatening email that is sent to this teacher. There's actually, it shows up twice. Uh, it's emailed sent once and then sent again the next day. And it pretty much says, do what's in this letter or you and those you loved are going to come to harm. Um, I think at one point it, it kind of implies that there'll be a mass slaughter of her and her family. The teacher immediately brought the letter to police and they began to look at one of her former students as a suspect. So police said it must be David. And that's when they started investigating him for sending this email. David is a intelligent, just interesting guy who has a, a, a world of right and wrong, and there isn't a lot of gray in it. Rebecca Lindstrom is an investigative reporter for the Reveal team at 11 Alive WXIA News in Atlanta, and she first met David Worth a few years ago. I think the biggest thing that stands out about David is is just his love of music, and not just a love of music, but his ability to play it. His family was showing me videos of him just watching someone playing an instrument, and then because they're a musical family, they would have some of these instruments around. He would go to them, even as a toddler, and just start playing it himself. Anything he touches. He taught himself to play the violin in four days. So a, an amazing gift for being able to hear music and then play music and be able to compose music in um, just just ways that we wouldn't expect of young adults. And so that's really how he found his way to communicate and kind of make sense of the world is through the notes and through his time in front of a keyboard, a violin. Um, he rattled off all kinds of instruments that over the years he had sort of taught himself to play. But certainly the things I had the opportunity to witness were were mainly his work on the violin and on the piano. The summer before his junior year of high school, David Worth wrote a 33-page, 14-minute symphony 
for the school's Philharmonic Orchestra to perform. Uh, David Worth, if you will stand up, is our composer. The uh, orchestra conductor had gone ahead and taken one of his compositions and given it to the entire class, and he had written an orchestra for the entire class, all of the instruments, you know, here's what the clarinet's going to play, here's what percussion's going to do, here's what the violin's going to do. He had written it for all of these instruments, and there they were, you know, he's just a teenager and he's got all these kids playing his music. This was David Worth in his element. Music was his life. But when Rebecca Lindstrom first met David, he didn't have access to his instruments. He was behind bars, sitting in jail without a conviction. She was working on a story about the series of events that had landed him there. And it's a complicated series. And the problem is, if you look at each event in isolation, uh, you can sort of see how people draw their conclusions. But when you're able to take more of a, a wide view and an open mind towards each of these events, then you start to understand how maybe these were misperceptions or misunderstandings around intent. And that's really what a lot of this goes to is intent. The story dates back to 2012 when David Worth was assigned to a guided study program in school. David was placed in a classroom for children with special needs. Uh, it was sort of, my understanding was, it was just like a one-hour type class. He was in mainstream classes for all of his subjects. He was very smart, had a wonderful GPA. Knowledge came easy for him as it relates to text-type, you know, studies. But... Understanding social cues, uh, David is on the autism spectrum. It's not something that he himself has wanted to admit, um, certainly not until later in his life, because he did not want labels. He didn't want labels to hold him back from being able to achieve things. He didn't want labels that put him in special classes. He just, as I said earlier, he just wanted to be a normal teen, going to his classes, absorbing knowledge, and, you know, being a success at life. So when David was placed in this new class, he pushed back. He also didn't like how he perceived the teacher treating and talking with some of the other students. Again, I think a lot of this went back to how he felt uh, and perceived when you're assigned to one of those classes. And so he didn't want those labels and that kind of treatment placed on other students that, you know, he also felt uh, deserved to be in the mainstream classrooms and treated equally as well. So he's smart enough. He was able to advocate for himself. And through that advocacy, I think there were just some tensions that grew between this teacher and David. And he would take things that she would say or do, um, maybe not in the most positive way. Um, and he worked with his therapist to figure out how to really talk to her, reach out to her, and kind of clear the air. And what he really wanted out of this conversation was an apology. He felt very hurt uh, by being placed in this class, by the way the class was conducted, by the way he thought that the teacher was talking to him. And he, he wanted an apology and for her to acknowledge that he viewed things differently. David and this teacher ended up sitting down for a 35-minute meeting recorded by both David and the school principal. Like, you hurt me. You think I caused you pain. That's what you're saying. You think I did this to you. Am I feeling these emotions? Well, David, 
It's your perception. That's what I'm trying to get across. It's your perception. Rebecca Lindstrom has listened to a recording of the full meeting in which David lays out his feelings and asks the teacher to acknowledge his pain and to apologize. But the meeting doesn't go as David hoped. She stressed from her point of view that, you know, it was his perceptions and and that wasn't her intent. That's not really an apology. And again, he's very black and white. So he went there with uh, an agenda and he, he didn't really achieve that objective. But he says, you know, he tried and that was all he could do. And he was willing to move on. The day after that meeting, this teacher reported David looking strangely at her. And that's when the teacher started shifting and she started to feel really uncomfortable about David. She started to feel like he was looking at her strange. And she started to feel kind of, in her own words, creeped out by his behavior. And she started reporting this to the principal. And um, tensions just continued to mount between the two. He he was fighting back, saying, I, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm not looking at you strange. I really don't want to even have anything to do with you. I just want to go to my own classes and get through school. According to court records, this teacher had co-authored a report as part of David War's school file that said he, quote, requires better understanding to read people and respond in a manner appropriate to the situation. But if these interactions did occur... Rather than attributing the behavior to autism, the teacher began to report feeling threatened. For his part, David Worth has denied ever looking at the teacher with any animosity. Through that process, there was some miscommunication between David and his parents and his father trying to de-escalate the situation. All I could think of is we, we've got to get something to calm down this anxiety. He reached out to David's therapist and said, you know, I'm concerned that someone's going to perceive in this climate where we are having school shootings, we are having, you know, violent incidents in schools that someone, you know, this teacher's going to perceive that, that David means harm when he really doesn't. Did you ever at any point think that he actually would or could harm no. His teacher. No, it was all about how it, how he was being perceived by other people. But that's not what David's therapist reported to the school following this conversation. For whatever reason, that therapist just kind of heard the keywords means harm and felt it was her responsibility to report it to the school. She did. That turned into David has threatened to kill the teacher or to harm the teacher. That evolved into a temporary protective order. David never said, in fact, David vehemently said, I don't know where this is coming from. This is totally out of the blue. That's not me. I never said anything like that to anybody. And, you know, all along, David says he was just sort of caught in this whirlwind. And he felt that if he did not agree to this temporary protective order, that it was going to delay his graduation. He was a senior at this time. He already had a scholarship to Emory and... He just wanted to get to Emory. So he agreed to go to a different school and to agree to this temporary protective order so that he could continue his education, he could graduate, he could get on to Emory. David was admitted to Emory University with a full scholarship. And during his first year there, he wanted to track down some records from high school. He'd later tell his parents that he needed those records to apply for an honor society at Emory. He has these documents that he wants to get. He feels like there have been some errors in his school record that relate to his time in the special needs classroom, and he wants to get these documents. An email chain between David, his first high school, and the school district details his efforts to locate these documents. And in the end, he learns that his original high school 
has the documents he's looking for. At this point, it's been 18 months since that initial 12-month temporary protective order was taken out. And David decides to go get the records from the school in person. Here's one of those situations where the average person was going to say that this next event seems odd. David goes into a convenience store, well, a pharmacy that's nearby the school, and he puts on latex gloves and a beard, sunglasses, and he heads toward the school. He's essentially wearing a disguise. And someone at that store thinks that it looks weird and calls police. Somebody walking by him as he's walking towards the school sees him, thinks it looks weird, and calls police. And so by the time he gets to the school, officers are already kind of looking for him and trying to figure out why this individual is walking to the school. David wasn't armed in any way. And according to one of his attorneys, he didn't do anything illegal. If the traditional person seeing David in the community sees some of those behaviors, they may look at those behaviors as being strange. But at the end of the day, none of those behaviors are criminal. That's just who he is. But of course, all the officers and anyone else who witnessed this incident could see was a man wearing a disguise walking up to a school building. So the reactions in that moment, I don't think anyone, even the family, um, has a problem with, with those reactions. Police, you know, kind of confront him and he doesn't really know what to say. He knows his experiences with the school itself, the tensions that were there with him and the teacher that led to a TPO and being hauled into court. And now, in his mind, he just wants to get some documents. Why he's wearing a disguise, I don't really know. The family has told me that he has worn disguises in the past, that that's something he does. I spoke with um, some experts who say that sometimes just having that disguise is a is a comfort. You know, it, it allows them to go out and do things kind of with that protective shield if they're in uncomfortable situations. But yeah, I mean, if you're just walking down the street and you see someone heading towards a school and they're in latex gloves and a beard and sunglasses— you would absolutely understand why someone would call 911. He doesn't really give police a good answer when they are asking him, why are you here? Why are you here? Why are you wearing what you're wearing? He just keeps asking to call an attorney. Um, and then finally, I think someone sees his ID, recognizes him, and just associates him with the teacher and the temporary protective order and the stalking. And that's where, you know, even as a reporter, we've had so many situations where one thing gets written down or one thing becomes a part of your record and it just continues to compound. It, it becomes how people view you because they never stepped back to get that context of the situation. So in their mind, he is a, he is a man or young adult who has a history of stalking a teacher, who has a temporary protective order, and has now returned once again to do harm to this teacher. The incident would lead to another temporary protective order being taken out. And it's several months later that the teacher would receive an anonymous email 
threatening harm if a series of demands are not followed. At the core of the demands were that this teacher drop all of her court cases, divorce, small claims, um, any charges that she might be involved in with other people. The teacher wasn't getting a divorce. She didn't have a small claims case. The only court involvement she had involved David and that temporary protective order that at this point in time, you know, when he was there on campus had expired and that stalking incident now where he was wearing the disguise. The teacher brought the email to police who immediately turned to David Worth. They went to his dorm, they seized all of his electronics, they went to his house again, seized all of the electronics from phones to laptops to hard drives, trying to find any evidence that he sent this letter, and if so, how he sent this letter. And at the end of the day, they were not able to find any evidence actually linking him to the letter. In fact, when the letter was sent, he was at a unexpected doctor's appointment, something that he wasn't originally, you know, even aware that he was going to. It was something his his family had scheduled and wanted to have a meeting. And so he was picked up and they went to this doctor's appointment and then the letter was sent. So he would have had to have a timer, I guess, to try to set it, which you can do. You know, you could set something to, to mail in advance. But even if he did that, he would not have had any knowledge that, you know, he would have had this alibi of sorts and been at this doctor's appointment when the letter was sent. Um, and so there's just little things like that that his family kind of questioned. Because, you know, I mean, his parents, I, I give them credit. They, too, stepped back and tried to say, is there something here we should know? You know, I mean... Is there a chance that he sent this letter? And as they went through and were asking themselves all these questions and trying to do open records requests and pull information, they could not find any evidence that that their son was involved. I can't help but to think that David fits a profile of a group of people that many people are afraid of, and that is he's male and on the autism spectrum. But from the start... Police were confident it was David who sent the letter. Rather than fully investigating other possibilities, they, even in their police reports, just say, we immediately felt convicted that David sent the letter and he was the only person that was investigated. So if he did not send it, we're never probably going to know who did because there was not any investigation that went beyond David. David Worth's attorneys point out this wasn't the only email sent to the Gwinnett County school system, but it was treated differently from the others. This was not the only email that Gwinnett County school system had received and not the only one that Brookwood High School had received. And all of those other emails were sent to the FBI for investigation. Attorneys Kamau Mason and Reginald Winfrey say this letter wasn't investigated by the FBI because police were already convinced they knew who sent it. They only wanted to pick up the piece that they thought showed a connection. About five weeks after the email was sent, in March of 2017, David Worth was arrested and charged with aggravated stalking. David Worth is accused of emailing his former teacher a seven-page letter demanding she follow his orders or die. Worth denies ever sending the letter. Despite David having an alibi and witnesses to what he was doing when the email was sent, the court ruled he posed, quote, a significant danger to the community, and David was denied bond. But the case didn't go to trial for years. They didn't have enough evidence to prosecute. 
That's really what it boiled down to. And that's why in the last story we did, at the heart of really what we were asking is, again, you know, I'm not a jury. I'm not a prosecutor. I can't sit back from where I am and say who sent the letter. But I can ask the question, is it right to keep someone behind bars for nearly four years when you know you don't have the evidence to prosecute the case. I mean, there's no new evidence really now than there was the day he was arrested. And I don't know if the hope was just that evidence was going to emerge, you know, in all of these months or years. But, you know, they would have gone to court, had the trial been today, they would have gone to court with the same information now as they would have four years ago. And so here he sits behind bars ruled a danger to society, life passing him by. Um, Again, a a young man on the spectrum who's not receiving any supportive services for that, being influenced by a lot of other cast of characters who, you know, are in jail around him and all of the dangers that come with that. At one time, Gwinnett County prosecutors offered David Worth a plea deal to get out of jail and move on with his life but he chose to remain in jail for the chance to clear his name. In fact, he remained in jail for nearly the same amount of time he would have served if he was found guilty of the crime. It was like watching somebody take a completely new, unhappened life and throw it in the garbage. Finally, after nearly four years, prosecutors requested to drop the charges, telling a judge they only had, quote, definitively circumstantial evidence. The request came after a new district attorney had been elected and after David agreed to take a polygraph exam. He also agreed to take a polygraph. That wasn't really an option early on, uh, but somehow with the new district attorney, it became part of the discussion. Usually polygraphs aren't admissible in court, but in this case, there was an agreement that regardless of how the polygraph went, that this time it would be admissible. So if they had detected deception, then prosecutors could have used that. They could have gone to trial and say, you know, he failed this polygraph. We asked him, and the reading wasn't good. But on the flip, the prosecutors also had to accept that when it was all done, um, the, the polygraph showed no signs of deception. He was specifically asked about his intent. Did he want or ever want to harm this teacher? Um, did he, you know, send this letter? And for each of his responses, it was no. And the person who was conducting the polygraph said that there was no deception. And this was an individual that was chosen by the prosecutor's office. I, I believe it was a joint decision uh, between the two of them. They, you know, they both signed off on this individual, but they both agreed that this was a person who had a lot of credibility to conduct this test, and that is why, you know, they were insisting that regardless of how this polygraph went, it would be admissible in court. Uh, and so I think all of those factors combined led the district attorney to finally say, if we were to take this to a jury we have to admit that we do not think we would have a case that we could win. And therefore, we cannot meet our burden of proof, and we are requesting that these charges be dismissed, and dismissed to the extent that his record is sealed. So in the eyes of the public, outside of the fact that his story has become public, he 
you know, he can go through, you know, his life as if this never happened. David Worth wasted no time. On his first day out of jail, he sat in front of a piano. With each song came a memory. It's an important record, is what I would say. Like, it's a record of who I was at any given moment. David is on the autism spectrum. It has perhaps shaped his ability to play music and what music means in his life. For David, music literally marks time. Yes, it does. I remember my entire life as it happened down to the exact place, time, and conversation we were having. The teacher involved in this case remains convinced it was David Worth who sent the letter. I did speak with the teacher briefly when we did our initial story, and she expressed her fear. She expressed that she was convinced that that David was the one who sent the letter, but because it was an ongoing case, she was not at liberty to really speak about it. And that was sort of a very brief conversation we had a few years ago. I did reach out to her again when we were doing this story, and I was unable to reach her. I did hear her statements in court when the prosecutor was requesting that the charges be dismissed. And in her statements to the judge, she continued to express extreme fear at the idea of David being released. What struck me, though, is in one breath, she was saying she was incredibly afraid of David and convinced that he was the one who sent the letter, but was also incredibly fearful to the extent that she sold her house, she wouldn't spend time with family and friends, because she didn't want to risk them getting hurt. But all of this while David was in jail. So if he is the one who is our primary threat and he's in jail for four years, I mean, if ever there was a time to at least breathe some kind of sigh of relief, you would think it would be then. And so the fact that she was still living in this extreme state of fear, even though he was behind bars, I just found that odd. But again, I don't know if that just speaks to what this experience and the impact that this experience had on her. Uh, And as you said, I I don't want to discount that fear. I have not had a death threat sent to me to know that moment of panic and what that would do to me today and a month from now and a year from now. Following David Worth's release from jail, he and his attorneys said they wanted to speak out about his case to urge schools, police, and the courts to examine how they treat those who behave differently than what society might consider the norm. They said their message is that being on the autism spectrum is not a crime. We needed to really explain to the courts what autism is and what autism isn't, because autism is not insanity. Autism is not post-traumatic stress. Does this teacher need to be afraid of David? No. No. Does anyone in our community need to be afraid of David? No. If you'd had the chance to talk to the jury and it were opening statements, what would you have said? I would have told them that the people who are supposed to protect him were the people who were harming him. I think that their comments really go back to what we were discussing as to the totality of the situation. 
yes, when there is something that does not seem right, we have to investigate. We've got to keep kids safe. We have to keep teachers safe. But we also have to look at these situations through the lens of the individual. And we've got to go to the heart of intent. And if someone is on the spectrum, then that could mean additional education and information around how socially this isn't the right way to respond or, you know, working with the parents or the school to find ways to to deal with the problems that are at hand. But criminalizing, like just assuming that because someone's looking at you strange or you don't understand how they're dressed, none of those things within themselves are are crimes. Yet their argument is that in David's case, they were made to be crimes and only added to the frustrations and the tensions around the situation. The fact that that David was no longer in her class, you know, if he wants to look at her strange, unsettling, maybe, but, you know, we look at people strange all the time. We roll our eyes at people that we don't agree with. That's not a a violent threat. That's not a reason why now you need to watch your back. Um, And it, it was all those misunderstandings that just kept adding to you know, how people were viewing the relationship between these two to the point that they almost felt, these attorneys were saying, we almost created this situation ourselves by by not really just examining what was the intent and what was actually going on. We made up a scenario. We made it fit our bubble. We didn't understand the situation, so we gave it a meaning. Unfortunately, that meaning in their eyes and in David's eyes wasn't reality. For True Crime Chronicles, I'm Will Johnson here with Reed Redmond to talk a little bit more about this case and this episode. Reed, I wanted to ask we hear a lot about these emails that were sent. Do we know how the emails were sent? Is that something investigators were able to track down? Well, the short answer is no, we don't know that. And that brings up another really interesting piece of this story that I didn't have a chance to get into in my interview with Rebecca Lindstrom, but it comes up in her reporting. According to David's attorneys, the state's theory was always that the email was sent through TOR, which is an acronym for the Onion Router. I don't have a very sophisticated understanding of this sort of thing, but TOR is a free software an internet browser that theoretically enables you to browse the web and communicate anonymously. So that was the state's theory, that they couldn't link the email to an IP address or specifically to David's IP address because they thought he was using Tor. But David's attorneys said, well, investigators could at least try to eliminate some possibilities to try to trace the email. And to prove that there was potentially more to be done there, they reached out to Tor and Tor responded with an affidavit saying that whoever sent the death threat did not use Tor to do it. Now, there are other ways to disguise your internet traffic, so I'm curious why prosecutors specifically thought the sender used Tor, but whatever the reason, that aspect of their case fell apart. Before we move on, another interesting detail related to the emails is that investigators eventually discovered there were two emails that had been received by David Worth from an anonymous sender, and according to David's attorneys, those emails said he was about to be falsely accused. 
Now, we don't know where those emails came from either, but Tor also said those two emails were not sent using Tor. Reed, Rebecca mentioned that polygraph exams are typically not admissible as evidence in court in Georgia, but then the one David took would have been. Can you talk a little bit more about what exactly David agreed to and then why that mattered so much? Well, this was significant because this agreement meant that the results would have been admissible in court. And that was something that David and his attorneys and the prosecutors agreed to before David took the exam. And a key detail there is that the results could have been used by either side at trial. So if the results showed that David wasn't being truthful, they could have been used against him in court. And the reason we don't hear about agreements like this too often is that you know, agreeing to something like that is a huge risk for a defendant to take unless they're pretty darn confident they're going to pass the exam. Going back to the timeline in this case, there's a five-week window of time between when the email was received and when David Worth was arrested. Why is that window of time significant? Well, what that window of time tells us is that if it was David Worth who sent the email, if he's the one who threatened immediate harm would come to this teacher if she didn't follow the demands or if she went to the police, he had five weeks to act on the threats if he wanted to. Thankfully, no harm ever came to this teacher or her family, aside from, of course, the distress caused by the email and the letter itself. And so that's an important point to remember here. Even if David Worth had nothing to do with it, this letter was real. Right. There is a very serious threat being made to this teacher in this school. And that's something Rebecca Lindstrom told me she and her colleagues took very seriously in covering this story. They didn't want to diminish the fear felt by this teacher or the pressure that schools face to keep their students and their staff safe. But what their reporting asks is, did putting this young man in jail for four years without much evidence, make anyone any safer? Or did focusing this investigation on David Worth potentially get in the way of finding who sent that email? And we heard Rebecca Lindstrom talk about that a little bit, saying it's not her role to say who sent the email, but that she wanted to ask, you know, why was David arrested? Was this really a thorough investigation? Why was he kept behind bars for nearly four years without a conviction? Is that right? And those are questions that go well beyond this specific case. All right, Reed, thanks for bringing us the story this week. And also thanks to Rebecca Lindstrom at WXIA 11 Alive in Atlanta, Georgia. Reed, we have a a new show we should mention to our listeners. Yeah, we have a new series coming out. It's called Intent, the Tex McIver case. You can search for it wherever you're listening right now and find the trailer. The first episode is going to come out one week from today on Monday, August 22nd. All right, thanks for listening to The Daily Crime. We'll be back next week with a new case and a new story. 